Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Rosenthal. On this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. J. Daniel Hayes about the big picture of the Bible. So if you sometimes find various books and sections of the Bible puzzling, on this program, we'll try to present for you a kind of box top picture that will allow you to see where all those puzzle pieces end up fitting in. For example, if you've ever tried to make your way through the book of Exodus, if you're anything like me, you probably found the first half of the book exciting with its dramatic narrative of the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But then somewhere around chapter 21, the narrative becomes, well, less dramatic as it shifts from an action-packed story to a list of ancient law codes, most of which no longer apply, along with tedious instructions related to the creation and maintenance of the tabernacle, with its courtyard, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden lampstand, the bronze altar, the priestly garments, and well, I think you see where I'm going. So the purpose of this episode is to help you see how and why all these little details fit into the Bible's grand narrative. J. Daniel Hayes is Senior Professor of Old Testament at Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and he's the author of numerous books, including A Christian Guide to Evidence for the Bible, The Message of the Prophets, and The Temple and the Tabernacle, a survey of God's dwelling places from Genesis to Revelation. In that last book, Dr. Hayes convincingly argues that both the temple and the tabernacle are patterned after God's original dwelling place with man in the Garden of Eden. So to get us started, I asked him to explain why he thinks this is significant. Yeah, well, the story throughout the Old Testament, and this really runs from Genesis, you know, even on into Revelation, where it begins in the garden and ends in the garden, where God's presence, his relational presence on earth, where he can interact with people, seems to be his primary intention. So in the garden, you see God there, his presence on earth. Then, of course, Adam and Eve sin. They're expelled from the garden. That's a picture of the exile. They're driven away, and then what most of the rest of the Bible is is focusing on is 
how does God restore that presence? Uh, and how can he relate to his people once again? So in Exodus, then when he rescues his people out of Egypt and wants to develop this close covenant relationship again, uh, he has them build a tabernacle so that he can come down to earth and actually dwell and be among them in a very similar situation to where he was in the garden. So now he's once again dwelling in the midst with his people there in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But similar to what happens in the Garden of Eden, the people rebel and they're not obedient. And so they are exiled again out of the land. God leaves altogether uh, until the New Testament. So Jesus then returns. He is the presence of God living and dwelling there among his people. And then when Jesus leaves, what happens is he sends the Spirit. And in Pentecost at Acts 2, then we, the church, become the temple of God. We're now filled with the presence through the Spirit of God. And that continues until we get to the end when Christ returns. And in the book of Revelation, once again, we have God dwelling among his people, this intense presence, and we're back in the garden. I have a very garden-like description at the end. I like what you said there, that this is the basic story that the entire Bible is trying to explain. How do we get back to that place from which we were exiled, this place where man walked in fellowship with his creator. And it's also, you know, it tells us a lot about God, that he's not distant up in the heavens, just sitting as, you know, some man with a long white beard on a throne sending down decrees, but he wants to actually be here, have a close, intimate relationship, dwell among his people. And as we track these dwelling places, the temple and the tabernacle, they're just kind of background for the big picture, which is actually God himself who wants to dwell and relate to his people here on earth. Yeah. Now, after the sin of Adam and Eve, you note that God stations cherubim to guard the entrance of the garden, which gives the Garden of Eden a kind of temple-like status. Why do you say that? Well, it, it, uh, the cherubim carry that role both throughout the, the Old Testament and throughout the ancient Near East. They place these uh, winged, uh, semi-divine you know, beings, creatures, angel-like creatures. Uh, in the ancient Near East, this was pretty common to guard the entryways into temples or into palaces. That's the symbol, I think, that everyone would have understood as guarding the entranceway into a temple. Uh, and so with the garden and with the sacred tree, which also seems to play a role, very much in keeping with, I think, how people in the ancient world would have understood a temple. And those cherubim appear in symbolic form in the imagery there in the tabernacle, right? Sure. I mean, on the ark itself, of course, there's two cherubim that are crafted right into the lid to the top of the ark, you know, over the mercy seat. And then they're embroidered onto the sides of the cloth in the tabernacle, especially the entryway, again, symbolizing that they are, you know, guardians of the, of the presence of God. And then when we get to the temple, Solomon constructs two big ones there in the most holy place, and then they continue to be on the walls as well. Uh, both the tabernacle and the temple, the openings to the tabernacle and the temple were always pointed in the east direction. Uh, then there in Genesis, you have this exile, and if you track it through the next couple of chapters, people are moving to the east, to the east, to the east, to the east. Uh, and so the idea, the implication is then to return to God, uh, you would approach both it, through the tabernacle entrance and then later through the temple entrance, which faced eastward.
And those would be successive zones of holiness, right? Sure. As you come in from the east, both in the tabernacle and then uh, in the temple, you know, you would first come into the courtyard and then you would come into the temple itself through the doors into the holy place. And then uh, if you're a high priest, then on into the most holy place. So you do have the three levels of increasing holiness as you get closer to God. You see it at Mount Sinai. God's at the very top, and only Moses can go up there. And then the side of the mountains has a certain level. We see only some elders can come up. And then down at the bottom, it's still a holy place, but that's where the people can come. That privileged position where they have near him, where he is actually dwelling among them, I think is why he tells them that they are now kingdom of priests Right. Uh, in Exodus 19 and calls them that, you know, you are a holy nation, you're a kingdom of priests. Uh, I think he's talking about that special privilege that priests have to actually encounter the God here on, on earth. Now, speaking of uh, the priestly role, you also note in your book that some of the same Hebrew verbs that are applied to Adam's role in the garden are used to describe the role of the priests who serve in the tabernacle. Well, that's an interesting uh, observation that some other scholars have pointed out, that the two terms that are told to Adam and Eve as to how they're to care for the garden, to tend and care for the garden, uh, when they're both used together, we only see those same two verbs used in Leviticus of uh, assignments to the priest. But what's interesting, if you do see Adam in kind of a priestly role, the fact that he didn't guard and protect God's holy sanctuary there in Eden by allowing the serpent to deceive his wife and also himself. And when you add to the fact that God then stations the cherubim to do that same guarding is pretty striking. Yeah, it is. And, and he, you know, he doesn't, he blows it as Israel is going to do throughout their history, not realize the importance that they have been given in this priestly role to be able to have the presence of God. But with it comes responsibility, uh, which they don't accept, and they lose that privilege. Now, what are some of the ways, you mentioned a little bit of this already, but can you go into the ways in which the imagery in the interior of the tabernacle sort of has these echoes and allusions to God's original dwelling place there with man in Eden? Sure. When you look at how God tells Moses to build the tabernacle, you know, embroidered uh, into the fabric of the interior, number one, were all kinds of floral patterns. So there's this creation of a garden-like look uh, with these floral patterns. And then the, uh, the menorah itself is described as a tree, a small tree with buds and leaves. And so I think the menorah also creates this tree-like looking uh, scene. So that in itself, I think, suggests that this is at least a very strong allusion back to that uh, garden location where uh, people first encountered the presence of God. Could that menorah also be echoing, um, you know, the first scene in which Moses encounters Yahweh there at the side of the burning bush? Yes, sure. I mean, I think it does both. I think it has a direct connection to the burning bush, and I think that's uh, one of the points that, uh, you know, the lamps are carrying. So you have this tree symbolizing life, but also this revelation, this huge step forward in the presence of God in, the, in that fiery burning bush in Exodus 3. I think it's an allusion to that as well. Absolutely. It's also interesting to think about the scene there in Eden you know, it was lush and it was full of life. That's one of the reasons why you have that organic imagery all throughout the tabernacle and also the later temple. But also one of the things you see too is that Eden was the source of four rivers and 
this idea of water that comes forth from the temple in the New Age is something Ezekiel talks about and various Old Testament prophets talk about. Jesus talks about this too in uh, John chapter 7 and also in his conversation with the woman at the well. This idea that if he's the new temple, there's a reason why he says, I'm the fount, I'm the source of true living water, right? Yeah, sure. And it's a tremendous theme, you know, that you're that you're bringing up. And this runs all the way then into the end where you get in those final chapter in Revelation when they describe the new Jerusalem and the presence of God. Then that river shows up again and they've got this river flowing out of the throne of God all the way down and bringing life. And there's lush trees again. And so it ends with the same imagery of the life that's provided by that river. You know, if you visit uh, the Mideast and travel throughout Israel, you realize how important that water is uh, and how powerful an image that water was, the difference between, you know, life and death and the, and the nourishment that it brings. So it's, it's a wonderfully powerful image that, like you said, starts there in the garden and runs all the way to the end till we get to Revelation. And Jesus connects with that, showing that he is the focus or the climax of that whole imagery. Uh, so I'd like to transition now to a discussion of the way in which the tabernacle ends up being transformed into the Jerusalem temple in the days of Solomon. You know, the other day I was watching a documentary on the National Geographic Channel, and this one was on the topic of the Ark of the Covenant. And there was a line in that program that sort of took my breath away. The narrator says in that documentary, quote, God spoke to David and told him that a temple must be built to house the Ark, but it would fall to his son Solomon to do the building. What do you think about a statement like that? Well, that might can be inferred from Scripture, but it doesn't ever really say that. When you know, when David has this encounter uh, with God, both in uh, in Second Samuel seven and then over in Chronicles, where they tell the same story, when David says, "I'd like to build a temple for you," God says, "Did I ever ask for a temple?" Yeah, I don't ever remember asking for a temple. I, I, with all the years I've been traveling in a tent, did I ever ask for a temple? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's exactly the way he says it. And so I think you caught the tone of it, you know, exactly. And so it is peculiar. I mean, God goes on to make a promise to David. He says, and there's a wordplay in there on the Hebrew word for house, which can mean the temple. A house can also mean a dynasty. And so David says, God, let me build you a house. And God says, no, I'll build you a house. And of course, what God means is the Davidic dynasty and the Messianic dynasty that's going to be fulfilled by Christ. And so they're kind of talking about two different things on how they're using the word house. And so out of that, uh, of course, there is an implication that one of David's sons would build the temple. It's, It's implied, but it's not clearly stated. David certainly takes that understanding when you get into Chronicles that it would be Solomon. And so Solomon does indeed come then and build the temple, but there's no indication at all of any kind of direct dialogue, you know, where God actually tells him that. Yeah, that wordplay is super interesting because God says, I will build for you a house and then I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So there I think is clear evidence in that passage, particularly verse 12 of Second Samuel 7, that the house that is being established is something that God's going to build through David's offspring, but it's going to be a kingdom, which is why I think you're right that God's meaning of the word house is dynasty. And we have that same option in English where, you know, we could speak of the house of Tudor, for example. It's not referring to a building, it's referring to the dynasty. 
Right. And you see that, uh, you know, there at the end, too, look at verse 16 in chapter 7, where God sums this up and says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. So God is clearly talking about something more than just the stones in the temple. It seems that David's son Solomon ends up interpreting these words fairly literally, that he is the offspring that was being referred to in that passage, and that the stones are literal stones. So in 1 Kings 8, he seems to think that he's actually fulfilled the words of the prophecy when he says in verse 20, after he's constructed the temple there in Jerusalem, quote, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made to my father. How do you think we should read this part of the story? Do you think Solomon's right? Well, it's an interesting question. I I do think that... uh, David over in Chronicles seems to understand it that way. But what's missing from this, uh, in contrast to what we saw in Exodus with Moses, is that God never explicitly comes to Solomon and says, in a clear you know, vision, I want you to build the temple, and here's how I want you to build it. And so in light of what happens in Exodus, where that is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over, uh, it's pretty glaring that when we get to the account here in First Kings, we just don't see it anywhere. So, yeah, along those lines, one of the things you discuss in your book that I found fascinating was the way you say that First uh, Kings seems to lavish all kinds of praise on Solomon. And yet when you study the text more carefully, particularly when you compare what he does with the instructions that God gives to Moses in Deuteronomy 17, we see that the praise is really only there at a kind of surface level and that what's really happening in the text is that Solomon is being subtly criticized. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a peculiar thing, and I think the, uh, the narratives of the Old Testament are rich, and they're deep, okay, and there's a lot there. If you look in Deuteronomy 17, when God gives instructions there about the future king, he prohibits three things. He says the king's not to accumulate a lot of horses, especially from Egypt. This implies he's not supposed to have a standing you know, chariot army. You're not supposed to accumulate a lot of horses. You're not supposed to accumulate a lot of silver and gold. And then the king is not supposed to accumulate a lot of wives. Uh, and so when you get to 1 Kings 10 and 11, while the narrator, the teller of the story, seems to be praising Solomon, and how great Solomon was, he mentions those three specific things. Look at how great Solomon was. You know, he has all of this uh, silver and gold. He has all of these chariot horses, especially from Egypt. And then the wives thing, you know, however you might interpret the many wives in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is over the limit, you know, with a thousand. Uh, It's just an outrageously extreme violation of these requirements for the king in Deuteronomy. And just in case we miss the critique that's there just below the surface, toward the end of his life, we're actually told in 1 Kings 11 that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, even building high places for Shemosh and Molech on the mountain east of Jerusalem, which would be the Mount of Olives. Right, right across and within view of the temple. Uh, you can see these uh, pagan facilities over there. And, you know, the narrator places this, you know, at chapter 11, but this didn't happen overnight. I mean, to, he, he, he accumulated those wives throughout his reign, and he builds these other uh, pagan facilities uh, along the way. So, 
you know, it's it's the the question is, did he at the end of his life turn bad, or is he somehow you know schizophrenic, uh, or as I think what First and First Kings is telling us is that, boy, from the beginning Solomon is questionable. Uh, on the surface, he is pledging allegiance to uh, to God, but you see him on all sides really acting like another great ancient Near Eastern king. And he starts accumulating wives. And I think he starts adding these pagan worship sites, you know, fairly early. Uh, and this really starts Israel down the track to uh, pagan apostasy right as the temple itself is being built. That's one of the huge ironies of the story about Solomon. And it's interesting, too, to look at what happens later, because his son Rehoboam when he is installed as king, you know, the people are, are saying, you know, Solomon gave us very harsh servitude. Will you lighten our load? And the interesting thing there is that Solomon did give them harsh servitude because of all these building projects, including the temple. But in doing that, uh, he ended up becoming a new pharaoh, you know, echoing those themes of uh, the harsh servitude, demanding brick without straw. Right. And there's echoes to the Exodus throughout those first 11 chapters. And yeah, it is a huge irony. You know, he, while in Exodus, the people willingly come to work on the tabernacle, that Solomon is going to use forced, forced service and forced labor uh, to build not just the temple, but all of this royal facilities that he had on the Temple Mount, which are even bigger, you know, than the temple. And so as soon as he dies, that uh, that forced service, once his son says, I'm going to continue it, that plunges the whole country into civil war. And ironically, removes the northern, you know, 10 tribes from worshiping in that very temple that Solomon's building. So rather than unify the country uh, there around the temple, like the tabernacle had served as a unifying spot, the nation splits into civil war. Do you think that that line that we find there in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, you know, your offspring shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men. So if you look at that passage one-dimensionally, is referring to the Messiah, Jesus, that sentence seems to be a little odd because Jesus, of course, never commits iniquity and he's never disciplined. But if you look at it as this dynasty that he creates, here Solomon is one who does commit iniquity. And if you look at all those kings that came after Solomon, you know, there's wicked king after wicked king, and occasionally there's a king that does okay, but not quite like his father, David. Nevertheless, the dynasty is never dissolved. Is that, do you think, the best way to read that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that is the story you see in, you know, through First and Second Kings. And the narrator will even tell us that occasionally, you know, I mean, we marvel over the patience of God uh, with these kings who turn away from him over and over and over, but then Every now and then he says, well, because of David, you know, because of my covenant with David, even with Solomon, God endures, you know, Solomon's uh, idolatry and construction of pagan sites because of his uh, relationship with David. So, yeah, absolutely. I think God says, you know, there'll be some punishment on the dynasty, but I'll never cut the dynasty off or, or remove the dynasty because of this somewhat unilateral promise that God makes to David to say, from your descendant uh, will come, you know, a king who will rule eternally. And so the ultimate fulfillment is the, is, is the Messiah. So yeah, I would agree with you. 
And it's a unilateral promise. It's a one-sided promise, not a two-sided promise like the uh, the covenant at Mount Sinai where, you know, God makes commands and the people say all these things we will do. This particular promise is unconditional. God is going to build this dynasty. It's all up to him. Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, that's the way I read this as well, that uh, the Mosaic Covenant, you know, because of their disobedience will be shattered and that. It's why God leaves the temple in Ezekiel. The promise to David is what carries through that, you know, where the prophets can say beyond the judgment and beyond the exile, there will be a time of restoration and this wonderful return of a Davidic king. And so all of that is God's grace. That's nothing that Israel does to deserve, you know, the coming of the Messiah or the restoration of the Davidic king through Jesus. All of that is God's grace, and it's moving and, and fulfills unilaterally, that's what grace is, uh, this promise that he makes to David here in Second Samuel 7. So yes, I would agree with you on that. And would you say that that Davidic promise, especially that we see there in Second Samuel 7, is essentially a further unpacking of that initial Abrahamic promise, that one-sided promise where Abraham is told, in your seed shall all the peoples of the earth be blessed. You know, initially Abraham is told in you, but later it gets more specific in your seed, in your offspring. And then Isaac is reaffirmed. It's in your offspring. Jacob is then reaffirmed. It's not Esau and it's not Ishmael. It's through this more and more narrow line where the promise is given more and more specificity. Then through David, it gets more specific that here's the way in which the Abrahamic promise is going to come about through this particular line. It's not merely through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but one of the tribes of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, and more specifically, the house of David in the tribe of Judah. Yes, yeah, and I would agree. And not, not everybody sees it this way, but uh, but I would certainly agree with that, that uh, the similarities between the Abrahamic promise and the Davidic is the this unilateral aspect is a big part of that. When God makes that covenant with Abraham, there in Genesis 15, God alone passes through those halves of the animals, and so he alone pledges himself to fulfill that covenant, uh, and it's this uh, unilateral covenant of grace like we saw with David. The one with Israel at Sinai is different in that Mosaic covenant has conditions, uh, and this is spelled out explicitly, Deuteronomy 28, if you keep this, then these blessings will come, but if you don't, uh, and you turn away and you violate this, then you'll lose you know, the land, you'll lose the presence of God, and judgment will come. I think when we get to the New Testament, Paul picks up on this and parallels the Sinai covenant with, uh, with law and the failure that people have to keep that. But then he's also going to pull back up Abraham and David the same way that the Old Testament prophets do, and say, here's, here's grace. It's always been by faith, Paul has said. Look at Abraham here in chapter 15 of Genesis, and that it's because of these grace promises of God uh, that we can have uh, salvation through Christ. So, yeah, this these difference in covenants between what's at Sinai and then the, the more unilateral ones of grace, uh, I think, parallels all the way on into the New Testament. And, 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 and Paul explains it a little better to us. But I think that he helps us see that tension between law and grace that's expressed in those covenants. He specifically uses that language of promise. You know, this is a, it's a promissorial covenant that starts with Abraham and makes its way forward. You know, and then that language comes up in the prophets where the new covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with the people at Mount Sinai 
And even moving beyond the second Samuel promise at the time of David, you move forward 300 years or so later at the time of Isaiah, and he gives the promise even more specificity when he says, you know, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here's a coming prince, and it says, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. It's the forever kingdom and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. It seems to me that Isaiah is pretty convinced that Solomon wasn't the guy. <laughs> right, and you know, and Isaiah, of course, wonderfully in this adds that it's tied to some kind of special child, and the child is somehow divine. Right. And I, you can see everybody scratching their heads uh, because that's not their normal understanding, you know, of a king and of the lineage of David. And so the prophets are going to add that component that I think was mysterious to everybody. How, how can he be called mighty God and everlasting father? You know, how, how can he possibly pick up those terms? And I think everybody was puzzled by that, of course, until Jesus comes uh, and explains that to people. But in hindsight, if you look back at that initial promise, you find it's there in what God says to David. He says, I will build this house He's the one, he's the builder. And yet then it also says one of your offspring will build the house. Both of those are true because Jesus is both the descendant of David, but he's also David's Lord. I mean, that's Psalm 110. Right, right. And the house itself that he identifies with the temple himself. Yeah, right. Now, something you said earlier in this conversation, you talked about the various commands and uh, instructions that Moses was given throughout the book of Exodus about building the tabernacle, you know, and if we compare those with the words we find about the building of the temple in First Kings, we find a difference. Can you explain that? Yeah, this was something that really struck me when I started studying both accounts, that the whole second half of the book of Exodus is about the tabernacle and constructing the tabernacle. God's going to dwell in our midst, so he needs a place to stay. So he tells them what to build. And so from Exodus 25 to 31, God tells Moses very explicitly, and the text is just uh, extremely redundant at saying, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses. And this is repeated over and over and over at Exodus 25 to 31. Then when they actually build the tabernacle in Exodus 35 to 40, the text continually says they built it like this according to what the Lord had said, according to what the Lord had said, according to what the Lord had said. And so again, they repeat this over and over and over and over and over and over and over, clearly showing that God gave Moses explicit directions, told him verbally, very clearly, and then they built it exactly according to that. And that's a huge stress. It just over and over and over. When you get to the account of Solomon in 1 Kings, I was uh, shocked to see that there's no voice of God anywhere in there as far as, I mean, God comes and, and reveals himself to Solomon, but he tells him to be faithful to the covenant. He doesn't give him instructions on how to build. And so Solomon takes the initiative, and it's and Solomon built, and Solomon built, and Solomon built, rather than, and the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said. So one of the big differences between the uh, the two accounts is the role that God plays, that God clearly gives specific instructions to Moses on the tabernacle, but that is totally missing from Solomon's account of how he built. So what you pointed out here about the lack of this repeating phraseology that we find in Exodus, 
with that absence, do you think what really happens here as the temple is being built is that the tabernacle is being transformed in kind of pagan Canaanite directions and that God is just sort of allowing that to happen? Yeah, well, I I think that Solomon is building, you know, he wants a big, impressive temple. And I think he is doing it to impress people. And I think he is using uh, the patterns around him. What are other monarchs doing and building for their gods? And I think he is exactly, you know, following that. Now, he has this tradition from the tabernacle. So he follows the basic, you know, pattern of the history of the uh, of the tabernacle. But I think that's exactly what the story in, you know, First Kings 1 to 11 are there in the middle chapters about 5, 6, 7, and 8. Are, is implying that what Solomon is doing is saying, okay, I've been, I'm going to build this temple, but rather than ask for a specific direction from God, he takes his traditions from the Exodus, but then he hires these Canaanite craftsmen, you know, from Tyre to come and actually, you know, oversee a lot of the construction, and he builds a big spectacular temple, but more in the tradition of his neighbors than uh, following the explicit guidelines of God, like Moses does in Exodus. I think that's correct. And it's really interesting because the language there you find from God, he, he asks, you know, did I ever ask for a house of cedar to be built? And then all those references that you find in the construction that Hiram from Tyre gave all this cedar, it's Lebanese cedar. In fact, at one place, the house of God is referred to as the forest of Lebanon. Yep. Yeah, it's one of those ironies, you know, where God tells him, as you mentioned earlier, kind of sarcastically, that I ever asked for a house of cedar, meaning a rich, you know, fancy, exquisite house. And then and when Solomon builds the temple, they go out of their way to tell us that cedar played a big role in that, uh, the, the whole interior of its lined. In fact, he had to go out of his way to make a treaty with, with Hiram, and they had to import the cedar from Lebanon. I and mean, it was a big deal to get cedar there, and they stress that over and over and over. So you wonder, it's one of those, uh, I think, uh, subtle, again, little ironies in the text that I think God has put into the text of First Kings there to just kind of jar us a little bit, that it kind of telling us, hey, didn't you read Exodus? You know, you, you read this in light of Exodus, the mention of this plush cedar. They're not bragging on this. They're showing us, uh, you know, in contrast to what happened in Exodus, and like you said, in First Samuel 7 as well, if that hovers around in the background, we got to be asking, why is why is Solomon doing this? Is he ignoring what, uh, what God had told to David? It's glorious what Solomon is doing. I mean, Jesus even says this, right? He says, uh, Solomon in all his glory. But when you contrast Solomon's kingship with Christ's, you know, it's the famous dichotomy that Luther talks about, the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. What Solomon is doing, it's all for the eye. And this spiritual house that Christ builds is significantly different. Right. And, you know, and at the end of that, after Solomon builds the temple, and he has this long speech, and he tells God, look at this spectacular temple that I have built for you. And what God answers, in essence, kind of says, you know, the only, the only reason that temple has any significance at all is that I am going to come and dwell in it. And that it's the presence of God that gives that temple that Solomon has built any significance whatsoever. Uh, and, of course, once the presence of God leaves, then it's, it's quickly destroyed by the Babylonians. Do you think there in 1 Kings 11, where God answers Solomon during that uh, consecration of this new temple that was built, when God says to Solomon, 
I have heard your prayer and plea which you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house that you have built, putting my name there forever. My own way of reading that would be to say that God is there speaking still of the dynasty because that's the only forever house which ultimately is fulfilled in Christ, the son of David, the forever king who sits on the forever throne. Because Solomon's temple isn't going to last but for a few hundred years, and it'll be destroyed by the Babylonians. It, it ends up being a crisis moment for the people during that Babylonian captivity, because they had really conflated the idea of God's presence with them with the temple made of stone. And it's that crisis moment which helps them to listen more carefully to the words of the prophets, that from the stump of Jesse, a new branch will grow up and sprout. Yeah, and that, you know, there in First Kings 9, when God says that, uh, I've consecrated this temple and I've put my name there and my eyes and heart will be there. Then immediately, though, he says, and as for you, you know, if you walk faithfully and if you keep my decrees, then this will continue. But, verse 6, if you or your descendants turn away and you go to other gods, which Solomon does before we get to chapter 11, then verse 7, he says, I'll cut off Israel from the land and I will reject this temple. And the Hebrew says, I'm going to send it away from my presence. Uh, it's what the word reject is. But I'll reject this, this temple, okay, this, this uh, stone and block one that he's building that I've consecrated. And then verse 8, this temple will become a heap of rubble. And so that's exactly what happens, of course, as as First Kings plays out, First and Second Kings plays out. So, so God, I think, like you said early, absolutely, his long term is tied to the dynasty, and the short term, it's very conditional. That if Solomon is faithful, then God's presence will stay there with that temple. I mean, God comes and dwells in it. That's a spectacular uh, blessing and benefit that they have, but. They, they just squander that opportunity, take it too lightly. So eventually they are exiled, and God talks about almost the temple in terms of exiling it as far as, uh, I think it's an idiomatic expression, but he says, I'm even going to move this away from my presence. And uh, he exiles them, and then, of course, he leaves as well. But even through that process of exile, he never takes his sure, fast love for David, and the dynasty is still protected. The source of the love is that unconditional promise that God will build this dynasty. And that's why Jesus, who is throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, referred to as the son of David, and he's always talking about the gospel of the kingdom. Right. I agree with that. That's good. Because that's the ultimate kingdom that he came to build, was this kingdom of this everlasting peace that nothing would destroy. Sure. And, uh, and, the, and the concept of presence, you know, as this temple that Solomon builds gets destroyed, the presence of God, you know, who dwelt there leaves. Then when Christ comes, the fulfillment of that Davidic dynasty promise enables, again, this new enhanced uh, presence of God to be known. Uh, and then when he ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes and then dwells the church, then we have this you know, fulfillment of all of these other prophecies that the temple is now us and the Spirit is now the presence of God. You know, And so all of this you know, ratchets up to this wonderful culmination that Christ brings where he pulls together all of these strands from the Old Testament into, into fulfillment. Really, all this background helps us to see the significance of John's words at the opening of his gospel where he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
And also the words of Jesus himself, where he said, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. He is the ultimate expression of God in our midst, right? Correct. And uh, and John makes that clear with that word, he came and tabernacled uh, among us. Uh, you see the same thing in Matthew, you know, Matthew opens up with, he's Emmanuel, God among us, and Matthew closes with Jesus saying, lo, I'm with you always. Yeah. Uh, and so it opens and closes with this promise of presence as well. But in addition to this idea that we find so clearly in John's gospel of Christ being this new temple, we also have this image in the synoptics that Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple. And they're drawing, of course, on the Psalms, you know, but this cornerstone of the new temple images are added to that throughout the New Testament epistles. Peter, for example, talks about the fact that we are living stones who are built up into this new spiritual house. So that's essentially the new temple that God is building. And this is our calling as priests and kings of this new temple is to have this living water flow out of our new spiritual house. So you can think of our evangelism, our talking to others about Jesus as that life-giving water. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, Paul Ed reiterates that in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple uh, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So the New Testament makes that connection. Uh, and so it's an incredible privilege to have the, you know, God, the holy, awesome God that used to dwell in the tabernacle and then the temple in the Old Testament actually now dwells within us. The thing that Paul explains, how can that be? We used to have all of these sacrifices that needed to take place because of the holiness of God. You can't approach God if you haven't been made clean and holy, that now the death of Christ has done that. His sacrifice has made us clean and justified us so that we can be the temple and we can come right into the presence of God. could have never happened without this atonement of Christ. So all of these theological streams, you know, pull together with this presence and this temple concept where Jesus comes and he is both the temple and then the cornerstone for forming us, the church, who again become the temple as God's presence dwells within us. You know, I wonder if uh, one of those images that you have in the Old Testament is that holy places were to be built with uncut stones. They're rough stones. They're not hewn. And I wonder if that's maybe something we could think about. The fact that we are living stones who are brought in. We're rough. We're uncut. We're sinful. (laughs) And yet we are incorporated by this amazing architect who uses this kind of rough material to build his amazing temple design, this new temple that's the forever temple. Sure. And then just to experience in the, the presence of God, you know, is just an incredible privilege uh, that we have to have that communion and fellowship with God through his indwelling spirit. Well, folks, you've been hearing from Dr. J. Daniel Hayes, author of The Temple and the Tabernacle, a survey of God's dwelling places from Genesis to Revelation. As always, if you'd like to order that book, I've included a link to it in the show notes, along with other related articles and resources. Folks, please remember that the Humble Skeptic Podcast is listener-supported, and that I really need your help to keep this show going. A quick thanks to all those who've put something in the tip jar, or who've become paid subscribers through Substack. Your gifts make all this work possible. Thank you. So last time on the show, I mentioned that if you took the time to write a positive review, I'd consider reading it on the podcast. Well, this review was recently submitted by someone with a username, Farm Lawyer. Quote, 
This is an excellent podcast. I'm really enjoying the clarity and in-depth, often scholarly discussions, factually and rationally addressing so many objections to faith. I'm learning without feeling confronted. Well, thank you, Farm Lawyer, for submitting that five-star review and for letting us know what you like about the show. If you'd like to submit your own review, we recommend that you use the Apple Podcast app, since the more reviews we get there, the more exposure we get everywhere. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. We'll be right back.